After Collapse, The End of America, and The Rebirth of Her Ideals, written by Max Borders, narrated by Russell Newton. In the Amazon, far below the rainforest canopy, a network of roots stabilizes a thick tree trunk. Mirroring the branches and twigs among the leaves above, the roots below split into smaller roots, which split into yet smaller roots, extending outward to absorb water. All of that water gets stored in the tree's cells. A few miles away, a mighty river rushes. That river carries watercraft and fish, a few large and many small, inexorably toward a delta. What feeds the great river are smaller rivers, Apurimac and Montaro, then tributaries, which are fed by streams, which are fed by brooks, which are fed by sources high in the Peruvian Andes. Navigating the river early in the morning, an old woman goes fishing. Her body contains a system of veins and arteries that carry blood, enriched or depleted, to nourish every cell in her body. Likewise, her brain and limbs are animated by information signals within a network of nerves. These signals have to be processed by an organ of fractal complexity, or the old woman would be unable to navigate, much less fish. Everywhere in the world, we see these sorts of living systems. They display the property researchers Adrian Bejan and Sylvie Laurent refer to as few large, many small. This stunning vascularization of everything means that even inorganic systems can have a kind of life, where life is defined as accommodating currents of flow and change. Living systems are thus flow systems, and if a system is no longer able to deal with currents of flow and change, it dies. We can say the same of human systems. To the extent that a human system can accommodate flow is the extent to which it will persist in time, that is, to live. In some fundamental sense, this idea, strange and wonderful, is the guiding idea of this work. This framing of living systems as flow systems has everything to do with collapse and renewal. But let me not get ahead of myself. Models and Metaphors The language we use creates our models of reality. In Metaphors We Live By, 1980, cognitive linguists George Lakoff and Mark Johnson argue that figurative language is more than literary decoration. It's a fundamental aspect of human thought and language. Metaphors help us navigate the world with a degree of efficiency that literal language can't offer. They can even change our perceptions of reality. Words on this very page can evoke physical sensations in our minds. One brain study showed that participants reading the sentence, He had a rough day, activated the part of the brain associated with texture. Likewise, when I write about human systems as flow systems, I'm hoping to evoke the concept of a liquid, even though I might be talking about an economy. So far, so good, but therein lies a paradox. Less accurate or even less truthful statements can be more persuasive than true statements. So if we're truthful, we might be sacrificing persuasive power. Likewise, persuasively powerful messages can lack truth content. How far can we take these insights? 
Armed with a view of figurative language as frames, George Lakoff has become one of the most celebrated messaging consultants in politics. He's written books that urge partisans not only to use metaphor more consciously, but to reframe ordinary concepts like freedom in ways that make illiberal ideas more palatable. Even if that's a good strategy for one's political party, it might not be that good for the goal of tracking truth. Cognitive scientist Steven Pinker thinks that Lakoff is off the deep end with his framing. In response to Lakoff's Whose Freedom? The Battle Over America's Most Important Idea, 2007, Pinker accuses Lakoff of cognitive relativism, a view that reduces mathematics, science, and philosophy to beauty contests between rival frames rather than attempts to characterize the nature of reality. Who's right? Is reality to be rewritten, or should metaphors track the truth? One of the biggest problems we face as a civilization is that too many people, especially experts, speak and see falsely through metaphor, meaning that some of our metaphors are misleading us. The very language we use to understand ourselves and our society is breaking down. Mission Control The Apollo missions are, by now, a part of our collective unconscious. Very smart people from the U.S. government's most celebrated agencies sat in a big room in Houston. The room had giant display screens and machines. The machines had toggles and switches and rheostats. The astronauts had instrument panels in space. All of those complicated machines were spread out before the team to help them do one job, get a spacecraft of astronauts to the moon and back. Complicated calculations for a simple objective. They called it mission control. Men controlling machines made it all happen. Machines have parts, gears, pumps, valves, wires, dials, and buttons that make up a whole. These parts fit together in a certain way, a way that can be known. Indeed, if these are things that can be known, they can also be designed and manipulated. The whole machine can be broken down into parts, which are themselves static. The relationships among the parts are cause and effect, so if you're smart enough, you know how one thing affects another. When everything's working correctly, machines run well. If something breaks down, it has to be fixed. Ultimately, machines work better due to good engineering, the product of a mind or a group of minds tasked with designing or operating a complicated system. The trouble with this kind of thinking is that people think it extends to society, too. Society is not a machine. The idea that you can order society is a kind of fallacy. If we can design and build a nuclear submarine, we can design and build a society. We can compare society's administrative ordering to the piecing together of a machine with its transistors, cogs, and pumps. Proponents, struck by the progress made by useful machine inventors, came to think of nature and society as machines too, and it's no wonder. In the first half of the 20th century, technocrats witnessed the introduction of the automobile, electricity, and eventually nuclear power. If geniuses could be hustled together to build a weapon capable of raising whole cities in an instant, surely social engineers could be gathered 
to make great civilizations, but that would take more than largesse. When we moved into the second half of the 20th century, we saw the development of even more sophisticated machines. Computing devices could solve seemingly intractable math problems. Experts could use computers to predict the weather, design buildings, or simulate the development of cities. With each advance, it seemed like humans could design anything at all. High Minds and High Modernism I believe that many of the most tragic episodes of state development in the late 19th and 20th centuries originate in a particularly pernicious combination of three elements, writes political scientist James C. Scott. The first is the aspiration to the administrative ordering of nature and society. High modernism seems an appropriate term for this aspiration. Folks across ideologies began to share this aspiration to order nature and society. Its exponents were planners, technocrats, administrators, architects, scientists, and outright utopians. Call these faithful high minds. They are fond of scientism, which is the notion that science can and should be applied to domains once belonging to philosophy. Frequently, one appeals to science methods, which get used to justify those attempts by a single mind or small group of minds to order society along some dimension. The trouble with scientism is that science is ill-equipped to answer the question of whether societies ought to be administratively ordered, much less whether they can be. Behind appeals to science and its methods is almost always the urge to control. There are low minds, too, who play handmaidens to high minds. Low minds gather in the square with raised fists, ready to tear down whatever they don't understand and had no hand in creating. High minds call them citizens or constituents, but only if they find them useful. If they don't, they call them backwards. Dangerous. Some high minds are envious, some are sanctimonious, some are downright pious, but all share the idea that society ought to be arranged. Sometimes they'll move heaven and earth to get what they want, even if it means exploiting a crisis, but it almost always takes more than useful idiots and money to fashion society in one's image. The second element, writes Scott of this episode, is the unrestrained use of the power of the modern state as an instrument for achieving these designs. It's not merely that you needed the smartest people at the rheostat banks of mission control. America's toggles and switches would have to do something, and doing something means brushing aside decentralized ways of doing things and going against the objections of the laity. The third element, writes Scott, is a weakened or prostrate civil society that lacks the capacity to resist these plans. The weakening of civil society is central to our collapse thesis, so I'll leave a bookmark and devote an entire later chapter to the subject. As we'll see, it's not technology per se that has made us more atomized and alienated. It is, rather, our exorbitant monuments to high modernism. In sum... High modernism provides the desire, the modern state the means to act, and the weakened civil society the leveled terrain on which to build dysutopias. 
The managerial state has assumed responsibility for everything from the middle class's incomes to the success of large corporations. It found perhaps its fullest expression in Otto von Bismarck's Germany and Mussolini's Italy, yet the high mind would never admit to anything resembling fascism. The foundation of fascism is the conception of the state, its character, its duty, and its aim, wrote Benito Mussolini in 1932. Similarly, high minds preferred declared goals, such as economic development or national greatness, over liberal values such as freedom and charity. They carry out their plans in the name of the public benefit. That benefit might trickle down to the public, but more often it goes to agribusinesses, airlines, and investment banks deemed too big to fail. The administrative state ends up choking off the dynamism we find in an unplanned order. Lethargic, wasteful, and well-connected firms exist at the expense of dynamic upstarts. The columnist Walter Lippmann, writing at the height of the New Deal, reflected on the high mind as the latter began to intervene in the economy. The thinker, as he sits in his study drawing his plans for the direction of society, will do no thinking if his breakfast has not been produced for him by a social process which is beyond his detailed comprehension. He knows that his breakfast depends upon workers of the coffee plantations of Brazil, the citrus groves of Florida, the sugar fields of Cuba, the wheat farms of the Dakotas, the dairies of New York, that it has been assembled by ships, railroads, and trucks, has been cooked with coal from Pennsylvania, in utensils made of aluminum, china, steel, and glass. But the intricacy of one breakfast if every process that brought at the table had deliberately to be planned, would be beyond the understanding of any mind. Only because he can count upon an infinitely complex system of working routines can a man eat his breakfast and then think about a new social order. Despite the coordination miracles described in this classic paragraph, these phenomena are invisible to most people. The damage wrought by the thinker is even less visible because the damage usually only shows up as a lack, a generalized socioeconomic malaise, or a lagging indicator. If accounting were just tallying up visible wins, high modernism is certainly on the scoreboard. The Hoover Dam, the war effort, the Apollo missions. Those victories shaped people's ideas for a generation. Their enormity put a salve over so many other failures and losses. The Great Recession The Great Recession was not as severe as the Great Depression, but it was difficult for many. At its worst, the national unemployment rate reached 10%. A host of factors led up to this spectacular crash and economic decline. As the United States tried to untangle a mess that had been made over decades, some of those factors became part of our common lexicon. Subprime mortgages, government-sponsored enterprises, GSEs, FHA loans, mortgage-backed securities, the Community Reinvestment Act, and credit default swaps. I could go on. The flashback should be familiar by now. Well-intentioned politicians and planners in both parties created policies designed so poorer people could get home mortgages. The trouble is, 
poorer people are more likely to default. Therefore, there's higher risk. Under normal circumstances, few markets would produce loans to such a risky population. But politicians insisted, promising to back or subsidize certain kinds of mortgages. Financial institutions responded with exotic debt instruments. Then came the game of high-risk hot potato, promising short-term gains and long-term misery. The government's guarantees, both implicit and explicit, created moral hazard among the lenders. Low-interest mortgages were tempting at introductory rates near zero, but could balloon. And balloon they did. More and more people started to default on their mortgages, and it became more and more difficult to pass off the debt-ridden potatoes. Eventually, major financial institutions started to cave, which threatened massive knock-on effects around the economy. Few of the government officials and financial wizards who had set the crisis in motion had stuck around, but the new officials and central bankers decided that the only way to save the economy was to put together a series of bailout packages for the big banks, as well as monetary and fiscal stimulus for everyone else. The basic narrative was that capitalism was broken. Debates turned into arguments over who broke it, the government or the capitalists, and how it should be fixed. Machine metaphor, Great Recession Not only do the metaphors we live by shape events, the events have shaped the metaphors we live by. If the 2008 financial crisis hadn't been an object lesson in America's system fragility, it at least revealed a slew of false metaphors. Those who were in the grip of the machine frame are too numerous to count. Paul Krugman, interviewed for a Newsweek story, once said that what drew him to economics was the beauty of pushing a button to solve problems. Bloomberg Business runs this headline for an expert panel of leading economists, How to Fix the Economy. Before Barack Obama was elected president, a CNN headline read, Obama's Priority, Fixing the Economy. Paul Krugman, again, advising President Obama from the pages of The Guardian, This riches-to-rags story is an example for Obama and the world of how not to run an economy. Bloomberg writer Carolina Baums asks rhetorically, whether the U.S. economy is overheating. Running, fixing, overheating, and don't forget building. A search of building an economy that works for everyone returns too many examples to list. Daily doses of this sort of language add up over time, affecting our collective understanding of how economies actually work. Canned abstractions cause the high mind to think his intuitions Models and post-hoc rationalizations are all the knowledge he needs. Like Midas, writes the British philosopher Michael Oakeshott, the rationalist, or high mind, is always in the unfortunate position of not being able to touch anything without transforming it into an abstraction. He can never get a square meal of experience. More often than not, the square meal of unintended consequence lands on the plates of the people long after the high mind has gone to pasture. It's no wonder most people find it easier to think of the economy more like a machine. After all, it's simpler to borrow from Newtonian mechanics than from Darwinian biology. 
People fix airplanes. No one has a clue how to fix a coral reef. One reason is that the economy isn't a thing at all. It's just people trying to do productive things well and serve one another. A much more accurate metaphor for the economy would be an ecosystem. Again, we can no more fix an economy than we can design a rainforest. To say so isn't market fundamentalism. It's a high regard for a rich intellectual tradition whose implications include evolution, complexity, and self-organization. Unfortunately, appeals to self-organization challenge people's desire for certainty. Adam Smith notwithstanding, most people prefer the idea that visible hands are running the show, even if those hands are not their own. During times of crisis, the Houston control room is the picture most people have in their minds regarding experts, particularly economists. More worryingly, this is how a lot of economists think of themselves. A room full of experts has been staffed with pushing the buttons or turning rheostats and moving resources where they need to go. The result? Prosperity for all. Of course, you have to get the right experts. Most people labor under the idea that such experts exist and that they need to be in the control room. For decades, popular history books have told schoolchildren that President Franklin D. Roosevelt and a team of interventionists, channeling economist John Maynard Keynes, piped in largesse to get America out of the Great Depression. This was referred to as priming the pump. Interestingly, economist Paul Krugman, defender of Depression-era economics, has tried to defend himself and follow Keynesians against the charge that they have succumbed to the machine metaphor. Witness Krugman's response to Michael Rothschild's book, Bionomics. Take for starters Rothschild's assertion that orthodox economics describes the economy as a machine. You might presume from his use of quotation marks that this is something an actual economist said, or at least that it was the sort of thing that economists routinely say. But no economist I know thinks of the economy as being anything like a machine. As noted earlier, Krugman does in fact know an economist who treats the economy as a machine, Krugman. Despite his protestations, we find Krugman using the machine metaphor over and over. It goes to show just how effective this particular mind virus has been. Meanwhile, said Krugman, congratulating Nobel laureates Eleanor Ostrom and Oliver Williamson, Keynesian economists, using very simple mathematical models, basically said, push this button. We need more G, government spending on goods and services. Paul Krugman is a brilliant economist. So just how does this sort of metaphor error start to infect so bright a mind? If it quacks like a duck. In the early 18th century, French inventor Jacques de Vaucanson dazzled audiences with a series of eerily lifelike automatons. His masterpiece came in 1739, when he unveiled a digesting duck. The duck could flap its wings, splash in water, and nip grain from someone's hand. It could even poop preloaded pellets onto a platter. Inside, the duck, made of gold and copper, was powered by weights, which used gravity to turn a collection of levers. 
first-of-its-kind flexible rubber tubing resembled entrails, giving the impression that the duck could actually swallow and digest food. The duck wowed the people of France, and Vaucanson won widespread praise. When I think of certain high minds under the spell of machine metaphor, I'm reminded of the phrase, if it walks like a duck. But as clever as Vaucanson's contraption had been, it was not a duck, and neither society nor the economy is a machine. To put all this into perspective, consider that economists built a machine designed to model the British economy in post-war Britain. It's called the Phillips machine. Like the digesting duck, the Phillips machine was greeted with much fanfare in 1949 when it was unveiled at the London School of Economics. The machine used hydraulics to model the workings of an economy, but now looks like a mad scientist's work. The prototype was an odd assortment of tanks, pipes, sluices, and valves, writes Larry Elliott in The Guardian, with water pumped around the machine by a motor cannibalized from the windscreen wiper of a Lancaster bomber. Bits of filed-down perspex and fishing line were used to channel the colored dyes that mimic the flow of income around the economy into consumer spending, taxes, investments, and exports. Keynes might have been delighted by the device had he lived to see it. By contrast, Friedrich Hayek would surely have shaken his head at such a Rube Goldberg contraption, and maybe he did. Hayek left the London School of Economics for the University of Chicago in 1950. Few macroeconomists are willing to admit that their models, despite greater sophistication, are infected with the machine meme. Most seem to think, we just need better models. Rogue economist Arnold Kling is one of the lone objectors, arguing that mainstream macroeconomics is hydraulic and that there is something called aggregate demand which you adjust by pumping in fiscal and monetary expansion. High minds, such as Nobel economist Joseph Stiglitz, have fallen prey to scientism too. They want to build and run the machine from Washington. Stiglitz argues that we should scrap market entrepreneurism entirely and recognize that the wealth of nations is the result of scientific inquiry. A more concise definition of high modernism could hardly be given, but that view is made all the more pernicious by the false promise of economic modeling and its attendant metaphors. As we move into an uncertain future, it's not at all clear that the high minds have learned their lessons. An internet search of the phrase, fix the economy, returns too many results to count. Building an economy yields even more. Deus Ex Machina Let's bring back economist Friedrich Hayek for an encore. Having witnessed the technocratic impulse of the 20th century, Hayek concluded in his 1974 Nobel lecture that so much of economics is afflicted with what we referred to earlier as scientism. It seems to me that this failure of the economists to guide policy more successfully is closely connected with their propensity to imitate, as closely as possible, the procedures of the brilliantly successful physical sciences, an attempt which in our field may lead to outright error. It is an approach which has come to be described as the scientistic attitude, 
an attitude which, as I defined it some 30 years ago, is decidedly unscientific in the true sense of the word, since it involves a mechanical and uncritical application of habits of thoughts to fields different from those in which they've been formed. This critique is as relevant as ever. When any theory is treated as sacrosanct, writes Michael Rothschild in Bionomics, its proponents assume the role of high priests, and strange things happen in the name of science. To recap our earlier discussion, the whole idea of building, fixing, running, pumping, regulating, or designing an economy rests on the idea that society can be ordered by intelligent design. That is, if the right guys are at the buttons. But there are no buttons. There are no pumps. Neither central bankers nor government bureaucrats can fly in as deus ex machina to correct a complex economy without grave, unintended effects. Why? Because the relevant forms of knowledge are not concentrated among a few elites, but rather dispersed among billions of people and millions of organizations. As such, the economy cannot be engineered. It is dynamic. It is organic. This insight allows us to find out just what's wrong with the language experts use to talk about the economy and our society. Maybe it's time for us to admit that there is no mission control for our living flow systems. Once we accept that, the machine metaphor sputters, that stalls. Before we turn away from the problematic machine metaphor, we should warn that other language games are being played, and they too are misleading. For example, we have society as a patient and technocrat as a doctor. Have you ever heard the phrase, our ailing economy? How should we prepare the patient for surgery? Then there is society as children, technocrat as parent. The traditional right provides the paternalistic law and order of a dad. The traditional left provides the unconditional care of a mom. Mom and dad always fight. Some view social policy as an act of creation. The metaphor here is government as God. The latter is omniscient and omnipotent, extending to presidents as messianic figures. While no metaphor works as an exact mapping of reality, some are better at revealing relevant aspects of the truth than others. Society as a living ecosystem is the most truth-conducive metaphor. Sadly, too few use it. Climate Collapse the problem of making sense of a complex world doesn't just extend to systems such as economies. It extends to other domains, too. The language we use to explain the world can liberate or constrain our understanding. And this is no truer than in scientific discourse, where false models and metaphors can lead people to abandon good sense. Climate change is just one example. Despite the incredible emotional and financial investment into what some have termed settled science, uncertainty about climate change's nature and extent remains. We'll discuss this more later, but let me be clear. My position is not that climate change isn't happening, nor am I arguing that humans have no influence. I'm taking the controversial position that expertise in this area is limited, 
and that collapse is far more likely to follow the failure of our human systems. You've probably heard some of the more sensational claims about climate collapse. They've been running for decades. A Pentagon report leaked in 2003 states, Disruption and conflict will be endemic features of life. Once again, warfare would define human life. The report's authors offer dramatic examples in the report, including the claim that catastrophic shortages of potable water and energy will lead to widespread war, and Britain will have winters similar to those in Siberia as European temperatures drop off radically, all by 2020. 2020 is now come and gone. In 2017, Yemenis experienced water shortages because of war, but not war because of a lack of rainfall. Britain has undergone a series of milder winters in 2015 through 2020, and in the five years prior, slightly colder winters. Of course, these leaked documents were widely reported by a credulous press. We finally got self-driving cars, but we never got catastrophic water shortages and permafrost Britain. How could the authors have gotten things so wrong? To give you a better idea about what I mean, let's zoom out a few orders of magnitude. Imagine we're in a kind of intellectual low orbit, high enough to get a wide shot, but low enough to still see some detail. From this macro perspective, we want to evaluate a set of claims about climate change that must be connected to form a coherent theory. Put another way, let's take some familiar premises from what we might term the climate collapse thesis, and view them in their totality. To accept the climate collapse thesis, that climate change ought to be seen as the number one potential driver of collapse, we have to accept all of the following hypotheses. 1. The Earth's atmosphere and oceans are warming. 2. The Earth is warming primarily due to the influence of emissions like carbon dioxide, and methane, which are generated by people engaged in production, trade, transportation, and energy use. 3. Scientists can limb most of the important phenomena associated with the warming climate and disentangle the human causes from the natural ones, extending backward well into the past. 4. The data gathered and then aggregated by the scientists are overwhelmingly error-free, and the scientists operate free of biases when packaging and presenting their data. There is neither peer review problem nor replication crisis among this set of scientists. 5. Even though individual scientists are working separately on different aspects of climatology and related fields, they can stitch these diverse aspects together into one complementary data set, which supports a single coherent hypothesis up to this point. 6. Scientists are then able to use computer models to simulate most of the phenomena associated with the Earth's warming and make reasonable predictions within the range of a degree or two into the future about a hundred years. 7. A different group of scientists can repackage that packaged information and make certain kinds of predictions about the dangers that a couple of degrees of predicted warming will make over that hundred years to glaciers, 
farmland, and sea levels. 8. Social scientists, including economists, can then repackage, without loss of accuracy or the introduction of error, the aforementioned global predictions, and make yet further predictions about the costs and benefits which accompany those predictions. Of course, the relevant subset of these portend either ecosystem collapse, social collapse, or both. And that subset is, of course, appropriate to the overall climate collapse thesis in this context. 9. Based on what the world might be like if that different group of scientists and the social scientists turn out to be correct, policy wonks can, in turn, accurately predict what the world will be like if certain climate policies are implemented, and these policies minimize those effects the social scientists predicted. 10. Policymakers can then take the prior group's predictions and set policies that will mitigate the predicted warming and subsequent collapse. Such will ensure what is best for the people and the planet on net balanced against other considerations. 11. The policies once imposed will be implemented in such a way that they work as intended, and all major emitting nations must in a condition of something close to global unanimity. That means there should be no defections, corruption, or false reporting by such trustworthy authorities as China's Communist Party or Brazil's Bolsonaro administration. 12. The abatement of greenhouse gas output has a real effect on the rate of climatic change, enough to pull the world out of danger, including climate collapse. 13. Those policies are worth the costs they will impose on the world's people, especially the world's poor. I repeat, to accept the climate collapse thesis, we have to accept everything above. Yet, the interdependencies are staggering. It's not only possible, but probable that one of the linkages will break. A humbler interpretation of climate change science and policy far from being a conspiracy of people in denial, turns out to be an imperative of reason. Let's assume the climate collapse thesis is a falsifiable theory. The propagation of uncertainty is something we can calculate. Assuming that on each of the 13 hypotheses above, the relevant experts were 95% certain, compounding the uncertainty would not yield a result of 95%, not even close. My envelope calculation comes out to 51.3% that the climate collapse thesis is correct. A coin flip. The problem is, my envelope method not only accepts the 95% certainty per hypothesis at face value, but treats each hypothesis independently. The trouble is, the 13 premises are interdependent. The problems don't stop there. We can zoom down into each of the above claims, as one might a fractal, and check another set of interdependencies. Whether at the level of science or the level of policy implementation, the likelihood of someone introducing error is virtually assured. The chain of claims to settled science, along with social policy prescriptions, is rather like an enormous telephone game. While it is true that we could spend multiple additional books evaluating each of these interdependencies in depth, it's enough here simply to point out the problem, compounded uncertainty.
At the very least, remaining questions about the state of climate science and policy put us in stark contrast to those predicting catastrophe. Consider the words of sustainability scholar Jem Bendel, who writes that the field of climate adaptation is oriented around ways to maintain our current societies as they face manageable climatic perturbations. The concept of deep adaptation resonates with that agenda where we accept that we will need to change, but breaks with it by taking as its starting point the inevitability of societal collapse. Let's assume that you remain unpersuaded that my critique should knock the climate collapse thesis out of the top issues of global concern. Consider, then, that this book might still be valuable. At the very least, we seek to address a different set of issues. In response, some might offer a variation on Pascal's wager, or the precautionary principle. Namely, we cannot take the risk because there is uncertainty amid the complexity. We must act to mitigate those risks no matter what, lest we go to hell. Isn't it possible, though, that the sort of draconian action being proposed could, from a human system's perspective, send us to a different kind of hell? The point here is that most of climate change alarmism hinges on models of reality that are not, in fact, reality. Questions surrounding climate change are hardly in isolation. Some measure of humility is in order. Resource Collapse One of the more persistent and pernicious collapse models originates in the ideas of Thomas Malthus, whose narrative returns to modern discourse carried by those we might broadly call Neo-Malthusians. Malthus warned that humans being could reproduce exponentially, but people could only produce food and other goods arithmetically. In short, resources are finite, and eventually populations will have to experience a die-off. This carrying capacity thesis is still widely accepted in ecology, and Neo-Malthusians apply this logic to humans on the earth. Arguably, the most famous of this group is Paul Ehrlich. Between the 1960s and the 1990s, Ehrlich predicted that much of the world would experience famine because there were too many people competing for too few resources. To kick off his 1968 book, The Population Bomb, Ehrlich wrote, The battle to feed all of humanity is over. Why? Because, according to Ehrlich, by the time of that publication, humanity had already lost. In fact, Ehrlich predicted that by the 1970s, Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. There was nothing to be done, and nothing could prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate. The Stanford professor of population studies earned his fame first by scaring people, then by getting things spectacularly wrong. Somehow, humanity has found a way out of that particular Malthusian trap. But, as with a lot of things, progress wasn't planned. The economy is self-organizing. Of course, we can give credit to singular innovators like Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution, whose work as an agronomist increased crop yields for the poorest people in the world. But a confluence of associated developments, including transportation, distribution, irrigation, and advanced farming techniques, all worked against famine. 
Another famous person of letters has warned of collapse based on the idea of resource depletion. Jared Diamond, in his aptly titled Collapse, writes, Severe problems of overpopulation, environmental impact, and climate change cannot persist indefinitely. Sooner or later, they are likely to resolve themselves, whether in the manner of Rwanda or in some other manner not of our devising, if we don't succeed in solving them by our own actions. In other words, collapse is coming, because no one is doing anything to stop it. Diamond omits Ehrlich's error of predicting collapse within a specific time frame. Instead, he thinks collapse will occur within the lifetimes of the children and young adults alive today. The problem with neo-Malthusian predictions is that they fail to consider three vital eyes, institutions, innovations, and incentives. Such is not to argue that pockets of humanity neither can nor will fall into Malthusian traps. Instead, whenever the three eyes are respected and working in harmony, we're far less likely to be haunted by the specter of resource collapse. Institutions are the rules of the game in a specific area, that is, what norms, rules, and laws govern resource use and exchange. Innovations are recipes that allow us to do more with less or to produce something where before we could produce nothing. Incentives, of course, are what motivate people to change their behavior. These three forces must work in dynamic interplay to increase carrying capacity. Let's take some simple examples that illustrate how institutions, innovations, and incentives work together to keep us from running out of things. It used to be that to send telecommunications signals, you used copper wiring. So, starting around 1960, there was a steady rise in copper prices as more and more people began using copper wiring. According to data from the CME Group, however, copper prices peaked in February of 2010 at $4.45 per pound. By that point, rising prices had already sent a message to innovators, find a substitute, and they did. Today's fiber optic lines are made of glass polymers that function sort of like mirrors within the line. These have become ubiquitous. Even though copper has many other uses, for example, in building construction, the price of copper in July 2019 was only $2.53 per pound. Some would argue that even sand, the silicon used to make fiber optics, is becoming scarcer. But if prices continue to send knowledge wrapped in incentives, people will seek out substitutes for sand. When it comes to fiber optics, they already have. Satellite internet requires no lines at all. Neither do wireless broadband networks. But what about buildings? Surely they'll always need stone and sand. Won't these resources also eventually run out? Not if innovative designers like Colab in Tulum, Mexico have anything to say about it. Long ignored by most wealthy nations, bamboo has the compressive strength of concrete and steel's tensile strength. But unlike those materials, writes Zach Mortis, bamboo sequesters carbon as it grows instead of emitting it while it's made. Because bamboo is a grass and not a tree, it grows fast, sometimes 
shooting up by as much as three feet in a week. Because bamboo is so light, a handful of people can build sophisticated structures without the need for heavy equipment. Travel to Tulum, and you'll see bamboo construction everywhere, from the smallest hut to the most palatial hotel. In the broader institutional framework, we have learned some exciting things. First, we can make a stark distinction between an unmanaged commons, such as the ocean, and private property, such as a grove of peach trees. The former almost always results in tragedies of the commons. The latter almost always results in bettered stewardship of resources. Such is especially the case when we're talking about consumption rivalry. If I eat a peach, you can't. Notice how there are no shortages of peaches, or goats, or chickens in developed countries, but there are shortages of ocean fish. That's because economic actors who extract unowned resources do so in a race to exploit. I'd better get it before someone else does. As the resource price goes up due to scarcity, more people are encouraged to exploit the resource, which can result in a collapse of the stock. However, when someone owns a resource, they have incentives to restrict access, conserve, even if that incentive comes from the expectation of future returns. Solutions to resource conservation needn't always be narrowly self-interested. They can include models such as conservation trusts, cap-and-trade systems, and even hybrid systems that treat resources as club goods. In some cases, though, there are pragmatic reasons to keep resources in the commons. Often, it's because ascribing private property rights is infeasible, as with the ocean or air. In other cases, community ownership and management just makes more sense. That's why so-called Ostrom Solutions to Resource Management, named after Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom, can also help us become better resource stewards. Ostrom Solutions are ways that communities can manage commons locally, using context-relevant, transparent, and agreed-to rules. The operative word here is local. Ostrom's field research in a Swiss village is well-known among economists and conversationalists alike. In this village, farmers tended private plots for their crops, but allowed their cows to graze communally. Usually, this situation would create a tragedy of the commons, but Ostrom discovered the villagers had no problems because they respected a community agreement from 1517, which means that one can graze more cows on the meadow than they can care for over the winter. Ostrom has documented similar practical examples of locally evolved governance elsewhere in her research, including such far-flung places as Kenya, Guatemala, Nepal, Turkey, and Los Angeles. These systems stand in stark contrast to far-off bureaucratic resource management schemes. Ostrom solutions may continue to improve and evolve right along with private property solutions, but suggest that we can avoid resource management proposed by politicians and distant experts. History has shown that bureaucratic systems are ineffective and too easily captured by special interests. Wealthier countries with robust property rights and local commons management find increasingly that they can do more with less.
MIT economist Andrew McAfee agrees. Even when it comes to that bastion of extractive capitalism, the United States, he writes in More From Less that we have finally learned how to tread more lightly on our planet. In America, a large, rich country that accounts for about 25% of the global economy, we're now generally using less for most resources year after year, even as our economy and population continue to grow. What's more, we're also polluting the air and water less, emitting fewer greenhouse gases, and seeing population increases in many animals that had almost vanished. America, in short, is post-peak in its exploitation of the earth. One might quibble with McAfee in the sense that so much of America's extraction has simply been outsourced to dirtier countries, but even these countries are moving in the right direction, with some even leapfrogging. The tendency to do more with less as societies grow richer might sound dubious on its face, but Simon Kuznets's growth curve works for the environment too. The environmental Kuznets curve is an observed relationship between environmental quality and economic growth. At first, ecological degradation tends to be worse as a developing economy takes off, until, that is, average income reaches a certain point as the country gets richer. At this point, more people can afford and thus demand environmental goods. The implication of this, contra neo-Malthusians, is that wealthier is healthier. Wealth also offers us an extraordinary ability to do more with less, thanks to waste elimination techniques and advanced technology. As we come more fully to appreciate the dynamic interplay among institutions, incentives, and innovations, we should be less worried about resource collapse. Before his death, the economist Julian Simon reminded us that there is something special about human beings— Our minds are the ultimate resource. Human ingenuity is the dharma of progress. Using good rules, new tools, and accurate information, we can ward off resource collapse with improved human systems. Institutions like private property and Ostrom Commons create the conditions for good resource stewardship. Better incentives get transmitted in free and undistorted price signals which tells us when we need to conserve and when we're okay to consume. And innovations allow us to conserve or switch to alternatives when necessary. Instead of worrying about resource collapse, we should thus be worried about the breakdown of institutions, incentives, and innovations. Before turning to our attention elsewhere, we should note a paradox in all this prosperity. People in wealthier societies tend to have fewer children, while those living in poorer countries generally have more. So even if one thinks overpopulation is a problem, the best solution is probably economic growth, as the relationship between wealth and having fewer children is stronger than mere correlation. According to UN researchers, global fertility levels have dropped from just over five children per woman in 1950 to around 2.5 children per woman in 2015. According to the late Nobel economist Gary Becker, one of the strongest drivers of this demographic change came from women's empowerment. Becker's work showed that 
As women become more educated and enter the workforce, the opportunity cost of having more children increases. We can add that as maternal and infant mortality rates have fallen, necessity drives fewer choices for bearing children. And yet, almost all of the solutions proposed by those concerned about overpopulation and resource scarcity have to do with curbing economic growth and fertility rates. Such includes proposals by advocates for the degrowth movement, explained here by political ecologist Ricardo Mastini as the abolition of economic growth as a social objective. Never mind that these movements frequently turn on a series of confusions about the nature of economic growth. Their policy ideas are just prohibitions, linear thinking in a nonlinear world. Such thinking seems reasonable on its face because practitioners believe the only way to fix a complex problem is for officials to mandate that people organize and live differently from today. In other words, to solve problems associated with growth, stop growth. The non-linear alternative tolerates economic growth and relies on greater faith in emergent systems. Though they can be a tough sell, the counterintuitive insights of emergent complexity bear out repeatedly. Humanity must show intellectual humility before complex systems because these systems are unpredictable by nature. Who would have predicted that in my lifetime you could double the world's population but see the world's forest land remain stable, triple the number of cars on the American road but see major air pollution sources go down, double the world's population but see extreme poverty go from 60% globally to less than 10%? If we insist on some rationalistic scheme to confer predictability, we'll end up losing the enormous benefits of emergence. Indeed, sometimes we find out the hard way that the ones keenest to save society are the ones who end up destroying it. Economist Thomas Sowell warned us about those in the grip of what he termed unconstrained vision. Those snared by this spell believe that authority should be as powerful as it needs to be to make the world just. As long as the right people are in power, authorities can rid the world of problems caused by a benighted subset and then set about architecting a just world. Justice, in this instance, is whatever the high mind imagines it to be. According to the unconstrained vision, human nature is highly malleable, but the natural world is not. Thus, morally upright people must have the authority to keep the rest in line. To embrace the unconstrained vision, then, is to imagine some ideal world, then use whatever means necessary to realize it. What is the opposite view? One of the hallmarks of the constrained vision is that it deals with trade-offs rather than solutions, writes Sowell in A Conflict of Visions. In other words, to accept the constrained vision is to remain humble in the face of what you don't know and probably can't know. Instead, we develop better protocols, which allow certain people to solve problems where they can apply local knowledge. This is humility in the face of complexity. It's the recognition of trade-offs. Of Mushrooms and Moonshots I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal, before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon 
and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Nations don't make commitments, of course. People do. But with that speech, John F. Kennedy planted a stark, powerful image in Americans' minds. At the risk of tipping golden calves, Kennedy's is just the sort of language that obscures technocracy's problems. Thomas Sowell reminds us that metaphors which suggest society is a decision-making unit can be misleading, because they ignore that the actual decision-making units face a particular kind of incentive structure. Kennedy was essentially making a commitment on behalf of 200 million people, with 200 million different plans and projects. Still, most people don't question the grand designs of soothing orators or national father figures because, well, democracy. And, of course, a man on the moon. It puts stardust in your eyes. Most of us never participated in the achievement, much less considered its costs. Yet, somehow, most Americans still take pride in it. The event certainly left Americans with the distinct impression that there are no limits to what society or the nation can do in that halfway house of the technocratic industrial complex. This variation on high modernism is not just a holdover from the 1960s, and we should be fair to the spirit in which the term moonshot is used in other contexts, namely as an ambitious project with a relatively low probability of success. We don't want to dismiss this connotation out of hand. My concern with the moonshot mentality is that it can go too far, transforming into an unreflective disposition to tolerate big projects requiring big plans and big money. One shouldn't get the impression that all big projects are bad projects, or that all small-scale projects are worth trying. Indeed, we can all agree that some projects are not worth doing, big or small. We can also imagine projects that are simply too big or too expensive to undertake. So what is the limiting principle? How big is too big? How expensive is too expensive? Because large projects require a lot of capital, we always have to be aware of that niggling lesson from Econ 101, opportunity costs. That's a way of asking what alternatives can't exist because resources went to another use. It's easier to gauge opportunity costs when planning with your own resources. At least with investors' resources, you're careful, because you owe them a return. When one plays with other people's money, or borrows from people in the future, one can lose all sense of priority. Space exploration is inspiring. Elon Musk is cool. But out of a billion different human priorities, a lot of people get floored by the whiz-bang nature of great technocratic plans. They fancy that technocracy can be applied anywhere to positive effect, including shaping society itself. In this regard, we have to consider just how many industries are in Hayek's halfway house. You may recall that these are private companies, but use the government to become parasitic on the wider order. We have to grapple with the probability of failure. Just starting a small business of any kind and keeping it alive is hard. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 
20% of small businesses fail within their first year. After five years, about 50% have failed. After a decade, 65% are dead. And it's not just businesses, but communities we might want to enter to realize our ideals. Generally, intentional communities fail at a rate slightly higher than that of most startups. Despite booms and busts, these failure rates remain pretty consistent over time. The lesson here is that the failure rate of moonshots is not likely to be any better, unless the moonshot organization can be propped up in some manner, but that too comes at a cost. Peter Diamandis, founder of XPRIZE, though brilliant and successful in his own right, has been a visible propagator of the moonshot mentality. Time and again, he said that what we really need to push humanity forward is 10x thinking. People pay Diamandis a lot of money to speak in front of throngs of adoring fans. Diamandis' idea is to imagine a solution that's 10 times as big as anything you might typically think of, then start reverse engineering from that audacious vision. Diamandis also describes this as exponential thinking, which he says Elon Musk has in spades. He suggests young people follow in Musk's footsteps. Young people should pursue their passions and focus on projects that will have an enormous impact if successful. That's a big if. No one wants to be the guy who gets on a stage after Diamandis and asks the audience to consider the invisible costs of a hundred failed moonshots or a million foregone dreams. But that's what happens when someone like Elon Musk puts other people's money towards his moonshots. In a world of scarce resources, you only get so many times at bat. You'll have even fewer if too much of your time and money and energy is going into moonshots. So, even if we agree with Peter Diamandis about 10x thinking, the only responsible thing is to add the advice of futurist Chunkam Wee, who cautions us to think big, start small, learn fast. In other words, be visionary, but fail early and cheaply. Alas, not everyone in the technocratic industrial complex operates at Mui's level of humility. Perhaps it's because those blinkered with high modernism or the moonshot mentality are simply less concerned about failure. Some are shielded from it for a time. But as Thomas Sowell reminds us, the godlike approach to analyzing society and its metaphorical behavior often overlooks risks, the subjective nature of risk, and or the wide variation of its cost among individuals. The simplest way to measure the success of a Musk enterprise is not to delight at videos of Starman orbiting in a Tesla Roadster, but rather to ask whether any of his companies can survive without subsidies. In case you needed reminding, subsidies are your money transferred to corporations without your consent. Denmark's experience offers us a warning. After the small Scandinavian country repealed its tax incentives for electric cars, Tesla's sales dropped from nearly 5,000 in 2015 to around 700 in 2017. Despite the U.S. electric car tax credit expiring in 2020, Tesla Motors still holds 80% of the electric car market in America. Critics say that the company consistently resorts to accounting tricks to show profits. The question is, can the company create real customer value above costs? People have understandably gone gaga over Elon Musk. 
He is, after all, a creative genius. He dazzles us with all manner of moonshot ideas, even if most of them require massive taxpayer support to exist at all. But it's precisely in this sort of dependency that we can take the moonshot mentality too far. Big, audacious projects can suck resources away from thousands of more modest, more profitable forms of human action. Instead of 10x thinking, we need to operate within the bounds of iteration, testability, and affordability. We don't have to throw away creativity. Like Kennedy, Musk is good at casting a spell over those from whom all the largesse is funneled, especially as these kinds of projects can end up costing a lot more than initially proposed. But being under that spell can amount to a failure to grok the system's wide implications. After all, most moonshots are wasteful. The ones that get completed create a dubious relationship between cost and benefit, as proponents play up the gee-whiz aspects and downplay the less visible costs. $110 billion in today's value was spent on the Apollo project, writes technology analyst Andrew Stover. This is a massive investment in what was essentially an enormous geopolitical pissing match between the United States and the USSR. However, as soon as the USA no longer needed the marketing campaign of moon travel, the entire lunar project withered and died. With a nod to 18th century political economist Frederick Bastiat, we have to ask, what sort of things never sprang up from all those resources that were taken out of circulation? What innovations even if they started small or mundane, never got to bloom into the next Apple, Airbnb, or great medical breakthrough. Humans need to solve big, expensive problems. Most of the time, we have to solve big, expensive problems together. But can we collaborate on big things without succumbing to the temptations of high modernism, with its emphasis on the unrestrained use of state power? Mycelial Thinking a few years ago, I attended a conference dedicated to finding ways to help Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria. I was honored to participate with a small group of futurists called the Moonshot Group. Some in that group were under the spell of the Moonshot mentality. One man in particular suggested a hyperloop between the port of Ponce and San Juan. When one considers that estimates for hyperloop construction range anywhere from $84 million to $121 million per mile, let's say $100 million, with 75 miles between the cities, it would cost about $7.5 billion to build. That doesn't include the costs of ongoing maintenance. The government could buy every citizen in both cities, about 500,000 people, a compact car for the same cost. Admittedly, this was a back-of-the-envelope calculation, but something didn't seem right. I turned to the man who had assembled the group, James Hanusa, and said, This is going to sound weird, but I wonder if thinking on Puerto Rico's recovery needs a different guiding metaphor than moonshot, something more like mushroom spores. You mean like a mycelial network? Mr. Hanusa said. Exactly. BBC's Nick Fleming describes the process. While mushrooms might be the most familiar part of a fungus, most of their bodies are made up of a mass of thin threads known as a mycelium. We now know that these threads act as a kind of underground internet, linking the roots of different plants. That tree in your garden is probably hooked up to a bush several meters away, thanks to mycelia. 
The more we learn about these underground networks, the more our ideas about plants have to change. They aren't just sitting there, quietly growing. By leaking to the fungal network, they can help out their neighbors by sharing nutrients and information. Mycelial networks are not centrally planned, but are nature's peer-to-peer processors. And like other natural phenomena, mycelial networks are products of evolution and emergence, not intelligent design. It's the network protocols we have to design. Mycelial thinking means, rather than figuring out what big thing we're going to do, one asks, within what simple rule set are the agent's autonomous goings and doings likely to be the most robust and generative? These systems are about organic growth from the bottom up instead of engineering from the top down. Such thinking, again, involves a biological metaphor, whereas moonshot thinking is a holdover from the machine age. Let's juxtapose these two thinking styles. Moonshot mentality. Big problems require big projects. Solutions must be as bold as the severity of the issues they seek to address. Want to power the masses' homes and businesses? Build the Hoover Dam. Want to cure what ails Puerto Rico? Build a Hyperloop. Want to show the Soviets who's boss? Build a rocket ship which will carry Americans to the moon. We need brilliant engineers to think in complicated ways until a complete solution can be fully conceived, blueprinted, and built. How much it will cost and where the money will come from is a tertiary consideration at best. Creating something big will bring benefits which, though hard to measure, represent the best in humanity. Often these projects are considered too big to fail. Mycelial thinking Big problems require many different experiments, most of which will start small but can scale to the level of that problem. Such experiments will be carried out in networks of experimenters with superior collective intelligence. These networks attack problems from various angles. Indeed, sometimes the problem is really a cluster of interrelated problems. Mycelial thinking gives rise to a cluster of interrelated solutions. We need brilliant people to think about protocol-level rules so that complex, multivariate solutions can emerge and be replicated, even if we don't yet know what they are. Often these projects fail early and cheaply, but when they succeed, we can measure their success exponentially. Mycelial thinking, as we suggested above, is about starting small and failing cheaply. Mycelial thinking means getting the rules right and running a series of small experiments to see which ones get traction. It might be that only two intend to, and they might not seem all that visionary. Some might be positively mundane. Others might turn out to be fascinating in ways we didn't expect. Ultimately, mycelial thinking is just as much about letting a thousand flowers bloom as shooting for the moon. At this point, you might wonder, are we expected to anticipate pro-social solutions from mycelial thinking, even if we don't know what they are? That's where we simply have to have some faith in the entrepreneurial spirit. No wonder moonshots get all the bureaucrats and budgets. A massive project with a visualizable end state is far sexier and easier to sell, especially when we can put on the national credit card. Most people have a hard time grokking the difference between $100 million and $100 billion. It's just zeros, after all. But everybody can imagine a man on Mars. 
try getting similar support for something abstract and prosaic, such as a diverse, thriving, anti-fragile society. The closest case I can think of was made by President Ronald Reagan, of all people, near the end of his second term. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it, but in my mind, it was a tall, proud city, built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace, a city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get there. That's how I saw it, and see it still. It's not bad, but is it as captivating as Kennedy's image of a man on the moon? Specialists and Supplicants Elon Musk fans might already have thrown this book away, but if you're still with me, I want to make our concerns a bit more explicit. The idea is that too many supplicant organizations like SpaceX could hasten our collapse. But NASA and SpaceX are only a tiny fraction of the extent of the problem, as we'll soon see. Supplicant is my term for a class of companies that wouldn't exist without subsidy, debt, or favoritism by the political class. These companies become dependent as the government functions as a monopsony, or single buyer. Their complication and extent mean layers of dependency, making them fragile. Why should anyone care? Because a single buyer is a single point of failure. A specialist is my term for a class of companies that enjoy no subsidy, debt, or favoritism. They exist because they create value for people willing to pay them to keep providing that value over time. A specialist's enterprise is sustainable. The discerning reader may have noticed that I made a couple of jabs at economist John Maynard Keynes. One reason is that Keynes made no real distinction between specialists and supplicants. I won't spend too much time taking apart Keynes' theory here. Instead, I'll suggest an alternative. My favorite comes from the rogue economist I mentioned above, Arnold Kling. Instead of the hydraulic concept of aggregate demand, Kling looks at the economy differently. He calls it PSST, which is an acronym for Patterns of Sustainable Specialization in Trade. The key to understanding Kling's approach is to scrap the machine metaphor entirely. As we've suggested, the economy is an evolved ecosystem, and, as with evolution, Kling puts the process of discovery, rediscovery, and specialization at the center of economic analysis. In short, so much of the socioeconomic order is like a rainforest, and in that rainforest, there's almost nothing we consume that we can make for ourselves. Note that Kling isn't saying we ought never to make things for ourselves, although he wouldn't suggest making a toaster from scratch. Instead, he's pointing out how our economy has evolved, especially away from the one based almost entirely on agriculture. Suppose that we had with us a time traveler from 1800. Imagine taking a random sample of a dozen people working in different office buildings and explaining to our time traveler how those people contribute to the production process. Try to convey the role of a web programmer, a graphic designer, a data analyst, or a social media marketing specialist. Try to explain how, in the United States, 
Fewer than 2% of the labor force is engaged in agricultural production, and less than 6% of the workforce consists of manufacturing production workers. This complexity comes despite technocracy, not because of it. Innovation constantly shifts the patterns of specialization and comparative advantage, such that Adam Smith's pin factory would be digitized and automated to a shocking degree. And that self-same factory might just as well spring up in Vietnam as in Vancouver, thanks to gains from trade. But we must take care. When the patterns of specialization become unsustainable, those affected can face periods of unemployment. They're like soldiers, Kling wrote, waiting for new orders, except that the orders come not from a commanding general, but from the decentralized actions of many entrepreneurs testing ideas in search of profit. The specialist entrepreneur is continually looking for ways to produce more at a lower cost, and so are her competitors. Some people think this process is bad, especially when one considers the acute pain of displacement. In the long run, though, we get increased variety, complexity, and interdependency. For now, let's leave aside debates about whether innovation and automation will hit escape velocity, unfolding at a rate that will outpace the economy's ability to recruit new workers to new positions. The point here is to reinforce what Kling thinks is the central process of economic development. Not big plans, nor aggregate spending. Technocracy, even the sort that inspires us with grand visions of Mars colonies and super colliders, pushes us from sustainability to dependency, from anti-fragility to fragility. When firms a few large, several mid-sized, and many small, engage in the process of discovery, they are working tirelessly to remain profitable. That means that each has to work within the confines of scarcity and risk to create customer value against competitors who are doing the same. They are specialists because, unlike supplicants, they must create direct but distributed customer value in the ultimate democracy, the one in which you vote with your dollars. Profit is earned. Losses are death. Economies function with scarce resources that have alternative uses. There needs to be a rational way to get the most valuable output from the available inputs. Supplicants, like Lockheed Martin or SpaceX, can be run by brilliant visionaries with highly specialized operations, but their enterprises subsist in the distorted reality of politics. Supplicants play a zero-sum game. The bigger the supplicant, the more it needs taxpayer largesse. While it's tempting to think that they'll never fall due to the unlimited supply of tax dollars, as we'll see, the money runs out. In America, it already has. Evonomics One would think that a full appreciation of evolution and emergence in the context of modern economics would be enough to mute the temptations of high moderism. But there's a new way to smuggle technocratic aspirations in the back door using the language of evolution. Enter evonomics. The term was first popularized by evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson, who thinks that the original idea of the invisible hand is old and erroneous and should be replaced. He suggests instead a new version. The new version is based on examples of the invisible hand that exist in nature, such as cells that benefit multicellular organisms, 
and social insects that benefit their colonies. These lower-level units don't have the welfare of the higher-level units in mind. They don't even have minds in the human sense of the word. Instead, according to Wilson, they exhibit behaviors that have been winnowed by higher-level selection to benefit the common good. Higher-level selection is the new invisible hand. Remember, nowhere in Wilson's discussion of ants and bees does he suggest that nature's higher-level selection is the product of intelligent design, nor, at any point, does he ascribe a mental life or agency to these creatures. Instead, he sets forth a theory of group, or multi-level selection. Then he concludes, We must learn to function in two capacities. One, as designers of social and economic systems, and two, as participants in the systems that we design. As participants, we need not have the welfare of the whole system in mind, in classic, invisible hand fashion, but as designers, we must. The invisible hand must be constructed. The bizarreness of this claim, like Wilson's preferred theory of selection, is multi-level. First, we should note that relatively few evolutionary biologists believe in multi-level selection. That doesn't mean Wilson is wrong, of course, but it's worth noting, because Wilson appeals to one controversial theory to derive yet another, the vaguely plausible idea of group selection is that whole species benefit from certain behaviors. Wilson thinks that these behaviors could have evolved at the level of the entire group rather than at the level of the individual. One source of trouble for group selection theory lies in the fact that the group-level phenomena Wilson points to can be explained entirely by orthodox Darwinism, for example, by running genetic algorithms. Again, this doesn't mean group selection is wrong, but it does mean that Occam has gotten out his strop. Second, the analogy here seems to be that because group selection is needed to explain behaviors that benefit the whole species, humans ought to develop altruistic supersystems that benefit the whole species. Wilson's new invisible hand is short on details. Still, he claims that enlightened designers will be able to architect socioeconomic systems better than all this crude business of truck, barter, and exchange. But, just as we can explain group traits through individual selection, we can also show that the common good can and does arise through individuals' self-interest. The great economic journalist Frederick Bastiat did just that when, 175 years ago, he rhetorically asked, How does Paris get fed? Even if you're not a Francophile, you might consider people having food as something beneficial to the species. Never mind that the man who originally came up with the term invisible hand wrote another book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This leaves plenty of room for acts of altruism among consenting adults. Third, Wilson's approach seems close to yet another deus ex machina. When applied to biological diversity, Arguments for intelligent design closely parallel arguments for high modernism applied to economic theory. Wilson is willing to unleash the high minds in the latter domain and not the former, even though neither is immune to Darwin's dangerous idea. If Daniel Dennett is correct in saying that natural selection is the best idea that anyone ever had, the idea of the invisible hand can't be far behind. We don't need species-level selection any more than we need society-level designers. Welfare is subjective and contextual, 
And that might be the biggest problem with Evonomics. None of our responses to Evonomics mean that people can't or shouldn't experiment locally, that altruism can't be effective, or that new institutional forms can't evolve. But experimentation is just conscientious mutation. Ostrom's managed commons and mutual aid organizations emerge just fine in the extended order. That is, until high minds plan them away. The subtitle of Ostrom's seminal Governing the Commons is, after all, The Evolution of Institutions for Collective Action. Our critique of economics doesn't imply that humans are just selfish homo economicus operating in a world of perfect information, but it does mean that everyone should stop trying to argue from a God's eye perch and resist the urge to design whole societies as if anyone has the requisite knowledge to do so. We do have to respond, though, to curious statements like this from entrepreneur Peter Barnes, who, in an interview with Wilson, said, We need to re-rig our economy as intelligent designers using a complex systems perspective. I suspect that many of the things Peter Barnes doesn't like about our economy are the unintended consequences of rigging. Neither Barnes nor Wilson has shown how their re-rigging represents an improvement overall of the prior rigging. Until Barnes can tell us how one might re-rig the Great Barrier Reef or the Amazon jungle, we should be as suspicious of this whole line as one might be of the Discovery Institute. A more up-to-date way to describe the original invisible hand is as follows. 1. Voluntary exchange of goods and services among individuals leads to a division of labor in which people specialize in what they're relatively better suited to do. 2. Asymmetries of knowledge start to form, which means more and more people have to trade with specialists and become specialists themselves. 3. Thanks to increasing gains from this exchange, people gravitate towards doing the things that are more productive at doing, which is a constant process of learning and improving. Whether alone or in teams, people use their lights to judge what they're good at doing in a way central authorities never could. 4. The resulting prosperity encourages more specialization and more trade. As more producers specialize, they produce more highly specialized things, yielding a diverse cornucopia. Each person might produce fewer things, but can consume more things. 5. People try new things, formulate new recipes, and combine existing ideas to make new ones. Such allows them to specialize and produce. It's called innovation, and it's probably the single greatest driver of prosperity. The more people innovate, specialize, and trade, the more opportunities they have to serve each other better. 6. The more they serve each other, the higher their living standards. Skeptics might argue that the original view doesn't make room for certain kinds of values. This is an open question. Suffice it to say that the degree to which producers or consumers are able to displace their costs onto others is the degree to which the common law can help. Otherwise, the overall good might not come uniformly or be agreeable to any given person, but it comes just as it does in the rainforest. Like many under the spell of high modernism, Wilson thinks that there is a middle way between decentralized experimentation and central planning. 
Supposedly, it will give us better results than an economy in which people self-organize in the service of different missions. Odd that Wilson doesn't think that we're already trying to live with this middle way. He is consistently short on details regarding his new version of the mixed economy, the status quo version of which is a source of both confusion and corruption, because its adherents assume one can reconcile the approaches that are being mixed. They cannot. As we'll see, the systems are incommensurable. Hint. One operates using persuasion, the other using coercion. Most of us want to see the world improve. Only the most heartless sociopath will delight in the thought that future generations will endure terrible hardship, environmental degradation, or humanity's end. But in our desire to leave our children a world better than we found it, we must recognize our limitations. In the past, authorities indulged the urge to fix their societies with visible hands. Thus, they left their societies in ruins. The Post-Scarcity Economy Even if you think David Sloan Wilson's ideas are misguided, they're not completely crazy. Indeed, there's much to recommend in upgrading the invisible hand to include vital information that the price system alone cannot capture. But sometimes, even zany ideas get traction. I'll discuss a couple of these ideas long enough to acknowledge that they're out there in the memosphere. Bad models and metaphors continue to pollute our sense-making. Fully Automated Luxury Communism If it wasn't possible before, technological advance will soon allow humanity to undermine the key features of what we had previously taken for granted as the natural order of things, writes author and space communist Aaron Bastani in the New York Times. To grasp it, however, will require a few politics. One where technological change serves people, not profit where the pursuit of tangible policies, rapid decarbonization, full automation, and socialized care, are preferred to present fantasies. Here, we are to imagine technology so advanced that lab-grown meat, solar panels, AI, and automation provides for everyone on Earth at no cost. According to Bastani, there's only one thing standing in the way, global markets. Ours is an age of crisis. We inhabit a world of low growth, low productivity and low wages, of climate breakdown, and the collapse of democratic parties. A world where billions, mostly in the global south, live in poverty. An age of crisis? Nicholas Kristof, writing in the same publication, concludes that every day for a decade, newspapers could have carried the headline, Another 170,000 moved out of extreme poverty yesterday. Or, if one uses a higher threshold, the headline could have been, The number of people living on more than $10 a day increased by 245,000 yesterday. So much for the age of crisis. It would seem that global markets are doing fine. So much so that the period from 2010 to 2020 was the most prosperous decade in human history. It'll be a shame to see sovereign debt wipe out so many of these gains, but I digress. The Venus Project The late structural designer Jacques Fresco gained throngs of admirers in his visual depictions of a resource-based economy, a form of utopian scientism. 
In a resource-based economy, all goods and services are available to anyone without the need to pay for it. For this to be achieved, all resources must be declared as the common heritage of all Earth's inhabitants. Equipped with the latest scientific and technological marvels, mankind could reach extremely high productivity levels and create an abundance of resources. Fresco painted, quite literally, pictures of massive solar arrays and towers that excite the technocratic imagination. But he leaves the question of means, costs, and trade-offs for someone else's imagination. Much of this fanciful thinking comes from the half-baked idea of a post-scarcity society. Though ideas such as luxury communism and Venus projects seem to be all the rage, they depend on the idea that technological abundance will eventually suspend economic laws. The origins of this sort of fantasy extend back to social theorist Jeremy Rifkin, political theorist Herbert Marcuse, and eventually to Karl Marx himself. In a text known as The Fragment, Marx imagines an economy in which machines produce stuff and people supervise the machines. He appreciated that the primary productive force in such an economy would be information. For example, a steam engine's productive power doesn't depend on the amount of labor it took to produce it, but rather on society's state of knowledge at the time. Knowledge and organization, therefore, are more important than making and running the machines. Marx is right that knowledge and organization are important. He just didn't know why they are important, much less in what configuration that importance is manifest. We'll come back to this in a moment. Right now, let's stipulate that things will soon be different. Production costs will continuously approach zero, and robots will do a lot of the work for us. And we'll still have the good old economic calculation problem first articulated in 1920. In his essay, Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, economist Ludwig von Mises explained that one of the biggest challenges facing any economic order is the deployment of capital goods designed to make things for consumption. How does anyone decide what goods to produce, how much should be produced, and how these goods should get produced? For example, if the servant robot company wants to introduce a new robot, what kind of microchips should the company use? Both chips are technologically feasible, but only a working price mechanism conveys that at the margin, one chip is more expensive than the other. Because one processor is dedicated to robot movement, the company should only use the more expensive chip for neural modules. Techno-socialism seeks to collectivize the ownership of those capital goods. But when? By definition, collectivization eliminates the markets in which these goods get exchanged. Rational economic calculation becomes impossible as soon as the collective removes all the relevant market perspectives. Think of scenarios in which people can manufacture their own goods with 3D printers, or nano-manufacturing devices that can replicate themselves, requiring only energy and simple slurries as raw inputs. The collective would provide these devices. Which slurries? What energy? From where and at what cost? And do the first of these future printers and nano-manufacturing devices have no cost or alternative uses? What about services? Will the supercomputer be funnier than Richard Pryor? Weirder than Wes Anderson? 
And what about services one might want to be carried out by humans? What about a vase with wabi-sabi handmade by a single craftsman in Kyoto? What about storytelling in the voice of Morgan Freeman at my kid's birthday party? Not a simulacrum, but the Morgan Freeman. Won't artists be allowed to price their time and services? Or should we enslave the artists? Okay, so services by humans will be an exception. But a supercomputer possessing godlike powers will replace entrepreneurial markets for various goods. And that will be enough for luxury communism. Sounds wonderful. If it arrives somehow, I'm all for it. But it seems that a resource-based economy can only arrive after certain conditions are met. Namely, when a functioning system of property, prices, and profit or loss is no longer necessary. If luxury communism is possible at all, it'll take the market's economic calculation to get there. Those imagining a world without market prices are appealing to a future in which there are self-replicating nanomachines and unlimited energy. Let's pass over the speculative horror that these nanomachines could mutate. Conversations about a world in which people are no longer needed to produce anything seem as distant as a world in which people no longer need each other. Maybe some sophisticated AI overlord will host us as we subsist and dream our realities, as in the Matrix. Life wouldn't be so bad if we could experience steak and sex on demand. Perhaps nature will grow up around our energy-harvesting cocoons while we dream. Dystopian stories can scare people into Luddism, dirigism, or both. When it comes to techno-socialism, is turnabout fair play? For the foreseeable future, without markets for production goods, there are no prices for those goods. Without prices for production goods, there's no way to determine which lines of business are profitable. Indications of scarcity remain distorted at best. In the absence of accurate information signals, nobody has a clue which goods to produce or how to produce them. Such information problems make it impossible for collectivized economies to generate the fantasy land abundance associated with techno-Marxism. Unless someone figures it out, these ideas remain the stuff of science fiction. This has been After Collapse, The End of America and the Rebirth of Her Ideals, written by Max Borders, narrated by Russell Newton. Copyright 2021 by Social Evolution. Production copyright by Spoken Tome Media. You need to hear this.